Kat Kattenzen is a singer, writer, biology student, and social media personality. She identified as a transgender man for over 15 years and began taking testosterone at the recommendation of doctors and trans activists. When negative health effects and the loss of her singing voice forced her to stop transitioning, she became disillusioned with gender ideology and the experimental practice of gender-affirming care. During our interview, Kat shares that she has not sung live in years due to the effects of testosterone on her voice, but she is now relearning how to sing and has not given up on her dream of performing professionally. She is also writing a memoir about her detransition and how she recovered from gender dysphoria. Kat is set to graduate from UC Santa Cruz this year with a Bachelor of Science in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. Now happy living as a woman, she is filled with gratitude that she has come out the other side and only hopes that sharing her story will help others see through the fog during this time of political censorship and mass hysteria. With part one of our conversation, I'm Sienna Mayhe, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. So happy belated birthday again. Oh, thank you so much. It was a, you know, a pretty chill day. I just hung out with some family and friends and that was nice. Um, did a little dancing last night for the first time a while, first time in a while. So that was good. Oh, that's awesome. How old are you? I'm 31, but I identify as a chronological. <laughs> oh my gosh I'm sorry I have to ask like are you joking or <laughs> um yes I'm I'm joking um but you know also I mean it does raise a serious question right I mean if you can be non-binary um you know why can't you be a chronological so um you know so so yes and no it's it's, it's a joke but I I don't see why it can't be a thing so yeah <laughs> I mean nowadays I, I just don't know anymore <laughs> yeah right yeah it seems to get a little bit uh things seem to get stranger more stranger more stranger things seem to get stranger than fiction every day they really do yeah oh your cat <laughs> yeah um he may make a special guest appearance a few times and uh it's either him meowing at the window or him scratching at the door so uh you know I apologize in advance if he's noisy but no, that's okay um no I actually have a cat her name is Honey and she's very vocal I usually have the door closed but I noticed that you were a cat person so I decided to let her have free reign today <laughs> oh yay well maybe they can meet each other I hope so <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I asked like how old you are because I was curious um, to get a sense of the timeline, you know, of your experience. I saw that you identified as a trans man for over 15 years. So that's about half your mm -hmm. life. Um, could you ground your story yeah. for us and, and share briefly um, what your experience was like from identifying as trans to going through a non-binary phase and then detransitioning. Sure. Um, so 
The first time I remember questioning my gender was when I was very young. I was around five years old or so. And I remember asking my mom if it was possible to change sex or to change gender. And, you know, my parents, um, so like I said, I'm 31 and my parents were both kind of older when they had me. So my mom's a boomer and my dad is actually the generation before the boomers. And um, so they just didn't have a lot of knowledge about people who who were transitioning. And, um, you know, back then it was very stigmatized. It was uh, basically only like trans women, trans identified males were um, people, people knew about them, but not really about the other way around uh, that, you know, girls could identify as trans too. And so basically my mom just told me it wasn't possible. And um, in some ways I really wished that had been the end of it. Um, I was disappointed, but I was like, okay, I guess, you know, there's nothing I can do to become a boy. But then, um, you know, I, I did continue to feel somewhat uncomfortable as a girl, but it didn't get really bothersome until around puberty when I was like 12 or 13. I my body developed very quickly and I, I got curves within the course of like a year. And um, I'd also been overweight as well. And I was bullied for my weight. And so I just, I felt uncomfortable in my body. And around that time was when I discovered a website online. Um, I, I don't even remember which website it was, but it was a website specifically for female to male people. And it had some forums and just some like, you know, passing tips. And probably the most interesting thing to me on there at the time is that people were claiming that you could literally change from uh, female to male. Like they were claiming that, you know, I used to have female genitalia and now I have male genitalia. And um, so, you know, in my 13 year old brain, that, that really latched on and I believed that. And I started thinking about it like, okay, like, I think this is what I want to do when I'm older, but I also knew it was a lot of surgery. And so that was a little scary for me. And then also I knew that the testosterone would change my singing voice. Um, and, you know, music and performing had been a huge part of my life, like my whole life. So I wasn't, um, like I was dysphoric about my speaking voice because it was actually quite high before I transitioned. I didn't think it was high, but listening back, I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and so I had dysphoria about my speaking voice, but my singing voice, I was, you know, I was used to it at least. And I knew what to do with it. So, um, so then when I, was, when I was around 15 or 16, I came out to my parents, you know, I told them, trans is a thing you know there are like real people who are born female that are transitioning to male and you know this is who I am this is what I want to do and initially my mom was sort of more supportive um, but then my dad wasn't supportive and he kind of uh, convinced her to not allow it and uh, you know I think they were worried about me I think they were concerned because I had some other mental health issues Oh, I could see the kitty there in the <laughs> corner. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had struggled with an eating disorder, depression, you know, suicidal tendencies. Um, like I had a lot of issues already at that age. And so I think they were just worried for me, but they basically tried to discourage me from transitioning in like the harshest way possible. 
uh, like they just told me I, you know, I wouldn't be good looking as a man. I'd, I'd be really short and, you know, small bone and I wouldn't like make a good man. And, you know, not that there aren't men with who are short and have small bones, but I'm, you know, I'm also very like petite and feminine looking and, um, you know, it was very painful for me at the time. So, um, they they took me to a gender therapist when I was 17 and I think they were hoping that this person would just talk to me and try to work out some of my issues and that maybe they would attribute some of my gender dysphoria to like my eating disorder and the bullying that I'd experienced some other um, trauma I'd experienced as a child and instead uh, the gender therapist affirmed me as a as a as a boy or as a man on our very first appointment and then um, by appointment three, he had suggested I go on testosterone. And he told my parents this as well. Um, so I don't think any of us had been expecting that. And um, just given that my parents weren't supportive, I was living in a small town and, and I had to drive for over an hour to, to see this gender therapist. And I had been going to support groups down there, but just like in my immediate vicinity, I didn't feel that I had any support in my transition. And, um, you know, again, I had been writing songs. I think I was producing my second album by that point. And so I, I just didn't feel ready to, to jump into the testosterone at that point. So then I, um, I kind of, uh, so when I was 18, I started college and I didn't really want to go to college. I wanted to just do my music, but again, my parents, uh, you know, they, they thought it was what was best for me. And uh, so, I started college and I kind of went back into the closet for a long time because it's just already scary starting college, meeting new people, it's, it's a new environment. And I was not able to pass as a man like whatsoever. So it would have just been constantly, you know, telling people my pronouns. Uh, it, it was just a bunch of steps I wasn't ready for. So I kind of went back into the closet and you know, I still believed I was a man on, on the inside and, um, but I didn't really outwardly tell anybody. I dated a couple people in college who were both men and, uh, you know, I was just afraid that if I came out to them that they would break up with me. And like at the time, just the relationship was more important to me than, uh, you know, coming out as trans, I, I suppose. Um, you know, but my dysphoria was still pretty bad. So I, I got into like drugs and alcohol um, and I ended up, you know, still kind of struggling with mental health, struggling with my eating disorder on top of that. And so ended up dropping out of college. Um, I dated a man for a while and, you know, worked some kind of like just random jobs. Um, I worked for a biotech company doing sales <laughs> for them. Uh, I did, you know, I, I, I worked at a pet store and a gas station and just like, like random stuff. And um, then I finally was like, okay, my gender dysphoria is getting really bad. Um, I'm, you know, I'm struggling to function in my life. And so at that point I did come out to my partner and uh, he broke up with me a couple months later um, because he, you know, he said, I'm not gay. Um, but you know, we, we have, we had a lot of other issues as well. It was, it wasn't like the only thing, but it was a major factor. And, um, so after that relationship ended, I was 28 at this point. And I was like, you know what, I've tried being a woman for, you know, 15 years and I'm just, I'm so unhappy. 
I don't know what else to do. And of course, the narrative from trans activists is that um, basically, if you have gender dysphoria, you're doomed to have it forever. And the only thing that will help you is, is transitioning. And uh, oh, and, and it's the only way to prevent suicide. If basically, if you don't transition, you're you have this extremely high rate of committing suicide. And given that I'd already had, you know, um, attempts in the past, um, I, I was like, okay, well, I feel like this is my only choice. I'm just gonna have to do this. And so came out to my whole online community at 28. I came out to family and friends. Um, and then about six months later, I started testosterone. And, uh, you know, I, I don't need to get into all the details right now, but I, um, you know, I had some health side effects from the testosterone. My singing voice was affected pretty quickly and affected in like a very negative way. It wasn't just that it got deeper. It was that I had to stop singing altogether for a while and stop performing. I still haven't performed in front of a live audience uh, since stopping testosterone because of, you know, the detrimental changes. But, um, you know, for me, for some people, they, it takes years for them to have side effects. And, you know, but for me at the time it sucks, but now I'm grateful that it happened so quickly because I ended up ultimately realizing it was the wrong path for me and accepting myself as a woman. And, you know, now I'm actually happier than I have been in a long time. And I, um, I very rarely struggle with gender dysphoria anymore, just due to like kind of a wake up call and sort of, um, letting go of some harmful ideologies and beliefs that I had about myself and my gender identity and all of that. Mm. So I hope that covers everything. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's interesting to hear you talk about your, your youth, because um, we, we're pretty much the same age. And like, I'm, I'm thinking about the time period. So it was like early 2000s, right? When you had gone to the gender mm -hmm. therapist and we're getting ready to go to college then. And back, you know, back then, like when I was in college, um, I, I was in music and writing and, and I, I remember homosexuality and, you know, being gay, lesbian, bi was, was very normalized and, and in a way cool. Um, transgenderism was not as popular. I mean, it was accepted in the circles that I ran in, but it was not as popular and, and discussed as widely as it is now. Um, so when you, when you think back to what your high school and college experience was like, how might that differ to a kid now who's, who's maybe questioning their identity and going through school and likely being very affirmed and supported. Right, I mean, you know, it has changed so rapidly. Um, like, you know, it's been basically a little over 10 years, I guess, since then, well, more like 12 years, but um, I feel like it was kind of just starting then, like this, this ideology was just starting to bloom because you know, I think in the past, the narrative was transgenderism is very rare and people who are trans generally transition to fit into society, to integrate into society more. And, you know, they basically just want to live their lives and pass as the opposite sex because, you know, um, for whatever reason, that that lifestyle um, makes them happier and and feel more comfortable in their bodies. And, and I feel like that was really 
the narrative when I was first learning about transgenderism. And now it's, you know, it's, it's completely just spread like wildfire. And, you know, now it's to the point where this small minority of people is trying to change the language used for, for everyone else. Like, you know, when I was first reading about transgenderism online, there wasn't any, I didn't, I don't remember hearing the word cisgender or uh, like non-binary wasn't a thing. Um, there was something called genderqueer that I read about later, which is essentially non-binary, but um, just, yeah, there's all these terms that just didn't even exist back then. And so now it's like, you know, we've got the language for like trans identified people themselves, but then they're trying to label, well, not all trans people by any means, but, you know, a very, some very loud voices, uh, you know, trans activists within the community are really speaking for people who are not trans identified and trying to basically construct the narrative about all of society based on like the small minority group. And I think that's really dangerous for, you know, young impressionable people, young, uh, yeah, impressionable, sorry. <laughs> I had a late night last night uh, for my birthday. Uh, so my brain's like, you know, maybe 65% capacity. But um, yeah, I think it's really dangerous for young people because, you know, I think the word cisgender can be used like a bad word. And it's almost like if, if you're cisgender, then you have this like place of privilege and your life is just so much easier than someone with a trans identity. And, uh, you know, you just have to accept the label of cisgender. Um, you have to accept like all of this language or, you know, you're not a good ally. You're not, a, you're not one of the good ones in the group. And, uh, and I think it really does kind of pressure kids to start questioning their identity earlier. Um, like, you know, I, I think in the past it was sort of like only people who already internally questioned their their gender identity would you know pursue transitioning but now it's like kids are being taught about it from activists online in some cases they're learning about it in schools and so I think kids that probably you know would have not really questioned their gender they would have just been tomboys or you know feminine boys a lot of them may have just grown up to be gay adults and then instead they are learning that they could be in the wrong body and I think that's an extremely dangerous narrative since it can lead kids down this path of medicalization. Yes, and I'm curious, um, when you talk about your parents and the gender therapist, there's a big contrast there because your parents, particularly your dad, was not affirming. And then they take you to this gender therapist who was very affirming, um, what we now call gender affirming care. And I, I know you have your gripes with that, which we can talk about. Um, but like reflecting on your on your youth, um, like as a teenager, what was it like to experience that contrast of your parents not being very supportive and yet having this gender therapist who was in a way a complete stranger to you be so supportive that was it a he or a she? He was a he. Well, he so he yeah. he affirmed you as a male the first time he met you. Like, what what was it like navigating that contrast at home versus with him? It was a strange time for sure. 
Um, you know, you would think that, you know, one thing I think that that's happening now that's dangerous is that, you know, when kids' parents don't affirm their identity, uh, it's, it's like they will immediately jump to the adults who will. So whether it's the school, whether it's, you know, the gender therapist, doctors, uh, whatever, it's like they, they don't want to listen to their parents. They want to listen to the people who are affirming. And I think for me, I think if I had been in this environment of like, you know, trans is just everywhere online, you know, uh, you can be trans at school, uh, you know, just uh, if, if it was more in the public sphere back then, like it was today, I think I probably would have just um, started the testosterone, just listened to what the gender therapist said uncritically. But I think what was concerning to me at the time was that I guess I didn't really trust either of them. Like I, I didn't feel that my parents were right because I definitely, you know, obviously thought my own identity was valid. But also I just, I did feel like the gender therapist just, you know, didn't really know me and wasn't really listening to what I was saying because, um, you know, I, I had been hospitalized for like anorexia and bulimia. And I just, you know, I had a host of like other issues that I did bring up to him. And he just seemed to dismiss them very quickly, just chalk it all up to gender dysphoria. And it just didn't feel very personalized. It felt almost like he was reading from a script or just going through a bulleted list of like, you know, this is how I should respond to someone with gender dysphoria. And I, I felt like I was being seen as trans before I was being seen as just a, a multifaceted human being. And also, you know, this individual, I, I think he might be in it for the money. Um, I don't know. That's just the impression that I, that I got from this person, uh, <laughs> you know, so it was hard. It was hard hearing, you know, what he was saying and then going home to my parents and just having it be like night and day. Um, it was a really hard time. They were, they were very worried about me and it was just a difficult position to be in. Mm. Did, did they use the pronouns that you preferred at the time or any names that you were suggesting? No, they did not. Uh, my dad basically said, I, you're my daughter. I will never see you as a man. Um, my mom did say, well, you know, if you end up transitioning, then I'll use like he, him pronouns for you. And and uh, she did use the pronoun, like, well, <laughs> correct pronouns for, uh, you know, other people that I'd met in, like, support groups. Uh, so she wasn't, like, completely opposed to the idea. But, um, you know, I, I just think they were worried about me transitioning, given my history. So they, they didn't want to do anything to, like, encourage my trans identity. And, you know, looking back, it's like, it's like I have mixed feelings about it because I do feel like them refusing to affirm me at you know for a period it pushed me further away from them but also I'm kind of like well if they had been like some parents are today where they're just super affirming you know yeah let's go puberty blockers let's go you know starting hormones at 16 or whatever I mean I, I think things could have been so much worse so you know in a way I'm, I'm grateful that they kind of stuck to their guns but um it was it was a very challenging time and it definitely created a rift in our relationship for quite a while. That's understandable. And 
um, you said, given your history, you know, they were like, they knew you, they knew you since you were born, right? And um, at, at some level, they understood the other struggles that you were experiencing, like you, you mentioned um, an eating disorder, and some addictions that came down the line. And even as, as a really young kid, you didn't feel at home in your body, you were still questioning whether you could become a boy. And, and they experienced a lot of this with you and understandably were concerned. Um, that's actually one of the interesting things I find, one of the things I find interesting about your story is that you were questioning, even as a five-year-old. And what, one of the things that trans activists will say, or that like just allies will say, they'll say, oh, well, if the kid raised concerns when they were really young, that makes them truly trans and we should listen to right. them even more. So what, what do you have to say about that? Because like, honestly, you kind of caught me off guard because I was like, wow, that that kind of <laughs> shattered a stereotype that even I was holding on to. Yeah, um, I think the whole idea of true trans is a really tricky idea. Um, you know, the way that I look at it is more, there are some people who transition who seem to prefer, you know, staying transitioned and, and they do seem to be relatively well-adjusted and, and happy. I mean, I mean, personally, I still have concerns about, I have concerns about the health risks um, for anyone who's transitioning because, um, you know, there are some, some very significant health risks, uh, with transitioning that are, that are being downplayed. Um, and, you know, even if you're otherwise happy with your transition, I mean, you know, like the risk of heart attack goes up for instance, by four to five times, uh, what it would be. And it's, you know, and one of the, uh, well, one of the misrepresentations that trans activists will say is that, oh, well, you know, if you're a female transitioning, your heart attack risk will just be that of like a, you know, a cisgender male. Um, and that's not true. It's actually higher for either, either sex transitioning, um, heart attack risk will be higher, stroke, um, you know, certain types of cancer, um, you know, just, of course, infertility, uh, just, a whole there's there's a whole host of like serious health issues so um but yes like there are people who you know for whatever reason um you know maybe they're they're able to pass really well as their desired gender um or you know just for whatever reason they do seem to be able to transition and, and be happy and have you know relatively few side effects you know I'm, I'm still not sure about 20 30 years down the road but, um, you know, I think this idea that, like, I don't really, I don't really believe the narrative that people are born in the wrong body, that, like, I, I don't believe in gender identity, um, that we have, like, a gendered essence or gendered souls that, um, like, I don't really believe anyone was actually supposed to be born the opposite sex, and, you know, and, and this isn't, uh, supported by science either like um you know trying to uh, to prove that gender identity exists is like you know it, it's trying to prove that i don't know like ghosts exist or or something like that um you know you can't prove it with science or in material reality so you know do i think there's some people who transition and you know are relatively happy and well adjusted 
I, I do. Um, I still have concerns about, you know, the health side of it. But then I think that there are a lot of kids getting caught up in it because every kid who's questioning their gender is going to think they're one of the real ones. They're going to think, well, I'm, I'm a true trans. And, you know, then you have doctors who are affirming anyone's identity who says, I have gender dysphoria because trans activists are screaming at them. You know, that's what you have to do. You have to affirm. Otherwise it's, uh, you know, you're like denying them the treatment that they need or whatever. And so you end up with people all across the spectrum, you know, people who you would look at them as a kid and be like, oh yeah, you know, you, you're very gender nonconforming. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you turned out to be trans. And then you have people that have no history of gender dysphoria um, or gender nonconformity who are, you know, like, I guess, rapid onset gender dysphoria cases who are being immediately affirmed. Um, so, you know, if doctors and medical professionals don't even have a good uh, method of being able to tell who's who, then it's, it's what is the purpose of believing in true trans? True, true. Um, and you, you talked about the, the risks and some of the side effects. Could you walk me through what treatments you underwent and um, any of the side effects that you, you may have experienced during that transition? Absolutely. So um, the only thing that I did, well, I, so I had, um, the first thing I did is I got a prescription for testosterone. And the way that I obtained that was calling Planned Parenthood um, in my local area. And I got a call back. And then within 30 minutes of speaking with the doctor, I got my prescription. Um, it was done over the phone. I never uh, met them in person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the reason given for that was because it was COVID and they weren't doing as many in-person in appointments. But yeah, there was no labs required. Um, they did order labs for me to get done like after the fact, but I already had my prescription at that point. And um, then I also, a month or two later, I called the same Planned Parenthood who uh, transferred me to another Planned Parenthood where I spoke to a doctor about getting a letter for top surgery. So basically Planned Parenthood or, you know, uh, so the surgeon that I was going to, I, I think that they don't even have a requirement that you need a letter of approval from like a doctor or psychiatrist or anything. Um, but if they, if your insurance is going to cover it, you have to get at least one letter of approval. So you know, I spoke to the surgeon and they told me I needed that letter. So that's when I called Planned Parenthood back and I talked to a different doctor, um, one who I'd, who I'd also never met in person. And I got my letter for top surgery in like um, probably less than an hour conversation. And, you know, as I was like telling her my, my history with gender dysphoria, she was just kind of like rushing me through it and just, you know, not really listening, just being like, okay, yeah, but what age, you know, uh, like what age did you first identify as trans and uh, just kept like kind of rushing me to just kind of get the information out so she could like you know tell them what they wanted to hear and it was just it was kind of the same sensation I got from talking or same impression I got from talking with this gender therapist that I'd seen it was like just kind of rushing through the process you know not really looking at me as an individual just kind of like okay like here's the protocol and when it comes to something like ir irreversibly altering your body, it just, it seems like there needs to be um, 
just a, a lot more safeguarding and you know it's it's really important to listen to people and what they actually need to treat their mental health conditions and not just you know a one size fits all solution is not appropriate but um within four months of starting testosterone thankfully i never i i, I was scheduled for top surgery but i never went through with it um but the testosterone i started to get heart palpitations i, I think it was related to binding as well um, but this was all happening while i was on testosterone I started to have kind of a mysterious pain and pressure like on the right side of my body. Um, it would get worse if I ate certain foods or drank alcohol. And I sort of just had this low grade feeling of nausea and upset stomach just basically all the time. And then, um, you know, this was more of like a cosmetic thing, I guess you would say, but I mean, it is a sign that your body's in distress, but after I do my, do my testosterone shot within a few days, I would get this like swelling, uh, like just my body would fill up with fluid. It was just this edema. And so my face was like, my face just looked extremely bloated. And, um, I gained about 20 pounds really quickly. Um, I was only on testosterone for about four months altogether which isn't very long, uh, but I gained about 20 pounds during that time. And, you know, it's like some of it was muscle, but some of it was body fat as well. And I, you know, I'm, I usually eat very healthy and that didn't matter. I was just still gaining weight. And for someone who had struggled with an eating disorder in the past, like that was very difficult for me to be like eating, you know, healthy and not eating that much food and then just gaining weight anyway. Um, and then, you know, probably the worst thing um because even with all of those side effects I was like I was so gung-ho on transitioning and you know just thinking I would be so much happier living as a man and um so I, I still wasn't ready to quit but when I lost my singing voice and it became painful to speak or sing that was really the last straw for me I was like what have I done you know I kind of realized that you know my my music and my creativity was like, it was just so much more important than my gender. And I had let go of like this beautiful gift that, you know, had been bestowed on me by the universe. And uh, that just, it was so painful because I didn't know if I'd ever get my voice back. It's still not back to like where it was, but I've, I've made some progress and I'm, I'm coming to like accept it. And, you know, but, at, but for a while, I just, I went through this really deep, the grieving process over my singing voice and you know it's still hard for me sometimes to this day hmm. it sounds like you felt like you were discarding your gift and and trading it in for something else i i noticed on one of your videos you brought up the little mermaid <laughs> um because it kind of was like that you were giving up your voice for something that you thought you really wanted and that at the time was really precious to you you know to feel comfortable in your body um but in the end of that that phase in your life you realized who you really were what maybe your essence was your artistic gift and your singing voice and that that's tragic but also really beautiful a beautiful way of coming to terms thank you um yeah actually I, I feel some gratitude now that that was what kind of made me pause and and backtrack 
you know, because I'm very glad that I caught it when I did and, and had these realizations when I did, because, you know, I hear of so many people that, you know, they're not only grieving their voice, but they're grieving like the surgeries that they've had. They're infertile, you know, they can never have children. And it took them going through their whole transition to realize that they did want biological children. Um, and just, you know, once you cut off body parts, it's like, you know, there's surgeries that can, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you can just go reverse it. Like if you get a double mastectomy, like you can go get breast implants, but it, you know, it's not the same thing as having like your natural body, like intact. And um, once you realize you regret something like that, I just, you know, it, it could have been so much worse. And just my heart goes out to people who have gone that far and then regret. Um, and, you know, I think with some people, like, um, you know, there's, there's some tra older trans people who, um, you know, they didn't regret their transition um, in terms of like, you know, they still identify as trans, but, you know, they've started to suffer health side effects like 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. And I think we're going to see this with a lot of people because, you know, it's, it's unbelievable to me that doctors, uh, well, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if it's just downplayed or if doctors are actually saying that it's safe because I mean, you know, testosterone is a no, is a known carcinogen and, um, and it's known to cause birth defects as well. And we're like, you know, we're giving it to, uh, you know, trans identified females who are still planning on having biological children and they're taking testosterone and, you know, say similarly, you know, taking estrogen as a male, um, it has all kinds of harmful effects on the body. So it's just, it's, it's unbelievable to me being a, a, a student with a biology background, I'm about to graduate this, this August, um, but that doctors would recommend it and say that it's, you know, safe um, because, you know, we already know cross-sex hormones are, are, are toxic for, you know, or taking wrong sex hormones is toxic for the body. So I just don't understand how we've gotten here to the point where this is, you know, not only a treatment that is recommended as, you know, a last resort, but it is the first treatment that is thrown at people like, oh, just, you know, try hormones for a while. Um, because then, you know, within four months, you could end up as a baritone, like I did. And uh, um, I talked to someone the other day who took testosterone for four months, and now she has a full beard that she has to shave every day, and, sh and she's detransitioned as well. So wow. it's, it's just it can happen extremely quickly. And then there's the health to take into account. And I know I keep beating a dead horse with that, but I just think it's so important to stress um, that it's not just this willy nilly thing that, you know, you can just completely alter your biochemistry and be completely fine and healthy. Uh, like it's, it's a big deal and it should not be taken lightly. It is a big deal. And reflecting on your story, um, I know you're stuck studying molecular biology now, and you were actually focused on biochemistry during your transition. Um, and that was in 2020, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, while you were studying biochemistry, was there anything that you were learning that you sort of had to, to push aside or shove under the rug in order to justify the transition that you were go going through? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think that I had the grave mistake of 
blindly trusting doctors and, you know, and blindly trusting Google because, you know, it's like, like when you Google, like when you Google this stuff, it's like the first thing that pops up is like all these propaganda pages that are like, you know, cross-sex hormones are relatively safe. That's what they always say, relatively safe. And it's just like by whose standards, like, like there's never been clinical trials on this. Um, like there have never been clinical trials for using cross-sex hormones for gender dysphoria. There have never been clinical trials for puberty blockers, specifically for gender dysphoria um, or surgeries for that matter. Um, there's never been any controlled studies whatsoever. Um, so it's, it, you know, even pharmaceutical drugs that are FDA approved and have been through clinical, clinical trials, some of those still get pulled off the market later, right? Because, you know, they did meet a certain safety standard at the time, but then once they were given on a large scale, you know, it was realized, you know, there's other problematic effects, but these cross-sex hormones, um, it's even worse because, you know, there's, there's not even a basic level of uh, quality control or safety control. And, you know, so I think that, um, you know, particularly when I was taking biochemistry uh, and we were learning about some drugs that had been pulled off the market and, uh, you know, how like receptors work and uh, like how drugs have a, th a threshold for like toxicity and things like that and how that works. And when I was learning about all of that, um, you know, I, I think all of that must have come to mind at some point that, you know, this has got to be true for these, you know, medicines related to transition as well. But, you know, I think I just believed what I wanted to believe. And I, I definitely had some cognitive dissonance. I just thought that it was my last resort. You know, I also, you know, had struggled with addiction to other drugs and I knew those weren't good for me. Uh, you know, I recently took neuroscience. So now I know even more how they're not, you know, good for the brain. But, um, you know, I, I obviously knew they were bad for my body, but I was just in a lot of, uh, I, I had mental health issues and I was a lot of, in a lot of emotional pain. And so I, I was just like, well, let's, let's just try it. And then, you know, you read all this propaganda and just honestly fake studies that are, you know, they, they have sampling bias, they have huge rates of dropouts from the studies, like sometimes up to 60% of the participants will drop out of these trans studies. And then, um, and several of them, the conclusions have been redacted as well. Um, there was one study that I think is still out there. It's still live on, in one of NPR's written articles that um, it talks about the efficacy of trans surgery, I think. And um, there, the conclusion was actually completely redacted and yet it's still being used by certain publications as you know, proof that transition is effective. Why do you think the conclusion was redacted? Um, so some other professionals in the field, basically, you know, they read through the methodology. And uh, so I, I, I sometimes get these two studies confused, but um, basically they were making too strong of a claim about what the study actually said. Um, because the problem with a lot of these trans studies is there's too many uh, what's called confounding factors. So, you know, when you a proper scientific study is controlled, so you're only testing one variable, you know, um, and these trans studies, um, like for instance, they'll compare 
like a surgical group and a non-surgical group and they'll say like okay how is this group's mental health compared to this group's mental health or you know suicide risk or something and the problem is like since they don't have a control group they could be comparing like you know 20 year olds living in poverty who haven't had surgery to like 40 year olds who are um who are wealthy and able to pay for the surgeries themselves and you know have a partner versus like maybe the other group is single and they don't control for any of these things and then they just say something like well you know statistically uh you know this group is 60 percent happier than <laughs> this other group or um or, or you know 60 percent less likely to commit suicide or something like that and uh i wish i had brought the names of the authors of these studies with me but i you know i could definitely um find them for you after after this but um yeah so they're not comparing equi equivalent groups you know the other thing is the high dropout rates like if, if you have a sample size of 100 people and 60 of them drop out and 40 of them say yes this treatment improves you know my mental health or whatever then you know can you really say that it's a good study if you know you don't even know what happened to over half of the pop uh, of the of the participants and um even when it comes to scientific studies, even a 20% dropout rate is considered, that's kind of the threshold for what is considered like a high rate of bias or high risk of bias, sorry. Okay, yeah. I want I want to circle back later to more, more of like the science and the social issues. Um, sure. But I do have a couple more questions like about your experience. Um, and because the four months of treatment was during 2020, like the, the beginning of COVID, I was thinking about maybe like the social social isolation that you might have been experiencing, like many of us did. How how were your relationships affected during that time? Um, I think that my relationships shifted a lot to online communities because, you know, I, I wasn't going to trans support groups anymore. I did have um, a roommate who was a friend and roommate who was very, very supportive. And uh, I would just kind of vent to her all the time. And she was, you know, she was like a trans ally. Um, and, but I really gravitated towards TikTok and I was connecting with a lot of people on there who were trans and non-binary. Um, Cause there's just so many people on there who are, and, uh, you know, I, I was uh, initially, I initially made a TikTok account because I was trying to promote my music and kind of just connect with other musicians on there and, uh, you know, just share my, share my music on social media and uh, that platform, it's really easy to grow on there because it's kind of, it was, especially in 2020, it was a newer and like up and coming platform. So it's just easier to reach a wider audience. And so you know, basically for a while, like most of my followers were trans or non-binary or, you know, allies. And that was sort of the demographic that my content was reaching. And I feel like it's, you know, TikTok in particular is so much of an echo chamber. Uh, like it's just, you can just go down like these rabbit holes of all the people you follow agree with you. And you know, all the people following you agree with you. And um, of course there's people who will come along and leave hate comments or, or whatever. Um, but I feel like that definitely made me more attached to 
my trans identity and and some of the more some of the more controversial sides of the ideology because it's just like an echo chamber and just like crazier and crazier ideas can become more prevalent within the community and you know I definitely was more isolated like most people were but um I, I got kind of like agoraphobic because you know I didn't pass as a man but I felt like very attached to my identity and wanted to be seen wanting to be seen as a man um so yeah I just didn't really leave the house that much I, I didn't really go out and do much even when I had the opportunity to do so so you know it was it was a hard time and you know having an identity online and and being in real life are two completely different things and I feel like I sort of forgot how to be a person <laughs> for a couple of years there yeah that's relatable and also like because you were going through that transition it was an even more pivotal time for you and maybe for your relationships too and just how you were learning or relearning to interact with the world um in, in one of your other videos you talked about transitioning and spirituality and what your conscience was telling you at the time um, during those four months when you were on testosterone and really strongly identifying as a man um, but you also said like there was something like a little voice in the back of your head that just it was like a you said it was like a a kind but concerned parent like your higher self was mm. just like something something isn't quite right about this could you tell me more about that little voice yeah absolutely um so yeah uh, prior to when i had sort of the realizations about my voice I, I feel like it was, I feel like that was the breaking point, but prior to that point, there was kind of this, you know, higher self guardian angel type of, you know, it was more of a feeling than like literal words, but it was just kind of like, you know, I was going by a different name then, but, um, well, I, I'll, I'll just say I was going by Tony at that point. And, uh, so it was just kind of like, Tony, you were given a healthy body that's more than a lot of people can say, you know, um, you were given like so many blessings uh, and, you know, you're, you're taking something that is, that is harming your body. And, you know, basically, even though I felt very euphoric at first, when I started taking the testosterone, um, there was something that was very similar about it to when I was struggling with addiction and doing drugs. Uh, like it just didn't feel natural. It didn't feel like I was doing something good for my body, um, regardless of, you know, some of the things being said in the, in the echo chamber. Like, like if you're trans, your body is meant for cross-sex hormones, and you know you will feel better because it's you know that's the hormones you were always supposed to have. Like that's one of the things that I was trying to tell myself. But yeah, just sort of something deeper within me it was kind of like you know you know this is bad for you um and yeah I guess it really took I mean I've always cared about my health like to some extent but I guess the lie is that you're trading a mental health condition uh you know or, or you know like even if it's if, if it's slightly bad for your physical health it's like you're improving so much you know with your mental health that it's worth it and so uh 
sorry, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, it felt very similar to addiction in a way. And it, it just, you know, it, it, it felt like another rabbit hole rather than like actually the answer to my issues. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you've also talked about meditation. Um, were you meditating at the time? Yeah, I was. Um, I've been meditating seriously for about see it was like 2017 when I did my first Vipassana retreat so about five years and you know within that there's been periods where I've kind of like fallen off a little bit and then there's been periods where I'm like more serious about it and um you know Vipassana is it means seeing things as they are and the practice is really um, about being present in your body and and body sensations and um there were certain things that I was um, ignoring and bypassing during my meditation in order to continue uh, continue supporting the trans identity and like feeling like I was on the right path with taking these hormones. And it's 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 not like you consciously know that you're that you're like bypassing it, but um, yeah, I think that that kind of just intuitive. Uh, you know, like I said, it wasn't like a literal voice, like in English, but that, that intuitive feeling of, you know, there's something wrong here. Uh, I eventually couldn't ignore that anymore. And that's when just some like really intense body sensations started coming out for me. And I started being like, okay, I can't, you know, I can't ignore this anymore. I'm, I'm not on the right path. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to really like forgive myself for, even going as far as I did, like, I definitely regretted taking testosterone for a long time. But, um, you know, I, I feel like um, there's been many things in my life that have sort of distracted me from my spiritual practice and distracted me from like, my intuition, but it is really powerful. And I feel like, in a way, like I did need to go through all of that to be where I'm at now. And I feel like now finally just a lot of opportunities are opening up for me. I'm grateful to be able to help other people who are struggling with similar issues. So, but yeah, absolutely. The, the meditation and uh, spiritual practice has been a huge part of my journey and recovery from this. Mm, that's great. I mean, one one principle that comes up in meditation is sitting with the discomfort. I know you see my cat. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, sitting with the discomfort, being present with it. And like that's the, the theme of discomfort comes up in gender dysphoria as well, like really just not feeling comfortable in your body. And that that's a place where I feel like two, two realms of thought and belief don't really mesh like mm -hmm. there's not much overlap or like much room for unity so to speak because like one one realm of thought is saying sit with the, the discomfort find peace with it explore it and then the other realm of thought while I think there is exploration there's still this like one track mind of pretty much transitioning and also developing policy that forces everyone else to um you know to mold their lives around around one's identity and like how what what feels safe and right and free for for that person regardless of how anyone else might feel absolutely i mean you know part of this the spiritual practice is 
um, you know, we can't control what's out there, but we can control what's in here, control our reactions to things and our, our inner peace, you know, that is, uh, that's central to many religions and different spiritual practices throughout the world. And, you know, it's certainly central to Vipassana meditation, which is uh, the, the technique that I've been practicing for years. And um, so, yeah, it, it is really concerning because part of it was I didn't want my inner peace to be dictated by whether people referred to me by the right pronouns or, you know, and it goes so much further than that because a lot of people, you know, trans activists are not they're not even okay with people being like, well, you know, I don't necessarily believe I have a gender identity, but if someone else wants me to refer to them by certain pronouns, like I'll do it. You know, they're not even satisfied by that. Like they, they have to force everyone to believe in gender identity and see it in the way that they see it. And, you know, I think it's a very dangerous movement for that reason, both internally and externally in that how it affects the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've actually feel discomfort in agreeing with you. Because like part of my belief system, and I think a lot of people would like to think that they wouldn't discriminate against someone because of their beliefs. Um, but if your beliefs are, you're going to force your beliefs on me, <laughs> and on the society at large, it's kind of hard to coexist with that force. Um, I notice there, there's a lot of discussion around like good and evil, um, you know, especially like around religion and like, is this just pure evil? I find though um, a more helpful duality or spectrum to explore is force and freedom. And mm. I, I almost feel sometimes like regardless of like the, the facts and the framework, like regardless of those disagreements, I think it comes down to a moral, a moral ethical disagreement of, I don't think any person has the right to force their way onto another person. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, I, I think it's whatever, you know, religion or belief system someone has, it's, I, I think, you know, part of, uh, you know, I think freedom is an American value and freedom of religion is important. And, you know, not just religion, but any, any type of belief or ideology someone wants to have, I think they should absolutely have the freedom to have that. But it is um, when it starts in, when they start enforcing that on other people's, uh, on other people and um, overstepping other people's boundaries to, to believe what they want to believe, you know, that is where it crosses the line. Yeah, and, and like you know, go ahead. Yeah, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, I do think that for me, believing in gender identity was something that kept me sick for longer, and I and I do think it was harmful for me to believe that. But you know, just me telling somebody that, like, you know, uh, like I, I think people need to come to their own in con their own conclusions, and I, I think people, um you know, they may, they may need to explore believing in gender identity. Um, you know, that might be the path for them. And so I, I think people by all means should have the right to believe in it. But, um, you know, people also need to understand that the whole world isn't going to be converted into a certain belief system. And, uh, you know, if, if that is, 
if your happiness and, and comfort as a person is dependent on, you know, the entire world uh, enabling your beliefs, then, you know, it's, it's not going to work out very well. Yeah. And that something came to mind. Um, I know there's a, a personal example from your life when you were detransitioning, you, you've spoken about an, an exchange you had with a friend who was then identifying as a trans woman. Um, and, and she, or they, or he, I don't know. Um, he, he was very forceful with you. It, I, it sounded like he was both triggered and upset and sad, but also like very aggressive and perhaps a stereotypical masculine way toward you as a woman. Um, could you tell me more about what happened there and how that was a shift for you in your thinking? Yeah, so there was a there was a trans-identified male. Uh, I, I try not to use the words trans man and trans woman. Sometimes I do, but um, you know, I I don't believe that I don't believe that identity is is you know what makes someone a man or a woman. So I you know I'm fine with with that language or you know if you want to use it or whatever. But I, I usually use the term trans-identified male because it's just more concise I guess or, or or more accurate rather yeah um but so you know this person had had started hormones and um I, I noticed the shift in their mental stability uh within a you know a, a couple weeks of starting it really and they just became a lot more reactive towards me and uh you know, sometimes I, it's weird because people have told me before that sometimes like I can be loud, like I, I do get passionate sometimes and I can, you know, speak loudly, but it just became an issue for me and this person where they, they basically were telling me like, you know, that I needed to speak more quietly and that I, I was like startling them and making them uncomfortable and that I needed to like control my volume is what they said to me control your volume and uh like you're triggering me and uh you know it was really it was really concerning and then so after they said that they like I don't even know if it was real tears or or not honestly I I'm not sure that it, it just seemed very melodramatic to me but they just kind of like just started emoting and like kind of crying but yelling at the same time at me and it was just over something like really really small um and but I had been noticing just the the shift in like emotional stability or, or emotional instability over the the weeks that they had started that and um it's like you know at that point I was still not I was still non-binary identified and so you know I didn't want to tell them like I didn't want to say anything to them. Like I've noticed a change in you since you've started taking these hormones, but you know, um, nobody has any idea. Like I said, there's been no studies on, you know, how these hormones really affect someone, uh, you know, not only on a physical health level, but just on like a mental health level and, you know, giving somebody estrogen and just completely messing with their, their natural biochemistry, like um, I mean, as women, it's, it's like, we've been 
uh, we, we went through puberty as teenage girls, you know, and we experienced the shift to like estrogen. But then when you've got a, when you've got a man who's an adult and has, you know, still a male level of strength, um, they do have, you know, probably a lot more testosterone in their system as well. Um, you know, I, I don't want to stereotype and say that all males are aggressive, but, you know, there is kind of this physical intimidation aspect that because males are men are larger and stronger than women. And that's, you know, that's not speaking poorly of women. It's just a biological fact that we have different, you know, physical makeup. And so, yeah, it is kind of scary when you've got someone taking a drug that is clearly making them mentally unstable. And then, you know, you're in close proximity with this person. So I ended up feeling, you know, very uncomfortable uh, with them around. And, you know, I, I had to basically um, start cutting them out of my life slowly. Um, Cause you know, it's, it's like, you don't want to cause any drama either. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and that happened with, um, you know, I had another friend who, who's biologically male that started estrogen and, you know, I, I think for a brief period, maybe it was a placebo effect. I don't know, but they had been saying that they were feeling so much better and like, they were so happy, but their, you know, their suicidal tendencies and addiction and all of that just came back full force after starting estrogen to the point where it was even worse than it was before. Um, you know, they, they went from being able to hold down a job to not being able to hold down a job and just, you know, crying all the time. And it was really difficult to watch. Um, you know, and similarly, like when females take testosterone, I mean, who knows? Like, I, I mean, I definitely was more on edge, I guess, like I was more prone to anger and frustration than like sadness. And, um, cause I'm normally like kind of a big crier. Like I'm, I'm a very like emotive person, uh, not so much in front of others, but like, I, you know, I cry during movies. I'm, that's just kind of how I am. And like, when I was on testosterone, I was just way more of like, I'm already a confrontational person, but I was just way more, um, prone to like anger and, you know, wanting to like fight someone and call them out on their stuff rather than um, just kind of processing it on my own and, and sort of, you know, experiencing emotion more in terms of sadness, I guess. Yeah, that as you're, as I'm listening to you speak about these two interactions, the, the themes that are coming up for, for you, I think, are voice and emotions, like both, both of those things are integral to the artistic process too. Um, it's experiencing a realm of emotion and of volume. That was an interesting choice of words um, that your, your friend used like to lower your volume. And so you were coming, you know, sort of into your own personal power, remembering your voice, using your voice. Um, and also maybe like, it sounds like perhaps going off the testosterone helped you get get in touch with that part of yourself that could cry and even maybe wanted to cry, have a good cry and feel that release. Um, were, were you able to, like, were you able to, is this a weird question, but like, were you able to cry when you were on testosterone? I don't think I cried once the entire time. 
I was on testosterone and um I even watched Avengers Endgame and you know I, I didn't cry when Iron Man died and like that was just weird for me um because I'm like I've literally all I always cry during the ends of movies like I cried during you know Lord of the Rings like the end of that um I, I don't know um I don't remember if I cried during Star Wars maybe not but it was yeah it was very weird for me like not even being able to cry during movies um I don't know if I really wrote a lot of songs come to think of it during that time either because um you know a lot of my songwriting does rely on connecting to my emotions and um yeah like the definitely my thought patterns shifted um, my interests shifted somewhat and the way I interacted with people um shifted so so when you're you know one person and, and you've experienced like your own brain on testosterone and then on you know estrogen and you know progesterone whatever um and you realize like wow I was you know I was the same person but I was also a different person like there was definitely some noticeable differences in how I processed you know information from my environment and interacted with others and so another part of this trans movement is, you know, basically saying that all of the differences between males and females are just superficial and that, you know, we're exactly the same and it's just, um, it's, it's just like Mr. Potato Head, you can take parts off and stick different parts on and we're all exactly the same and that is so incredibly false and you know, part of it is, well, I recently took um, really interesting class. Uh, evolutionary biology and we learned about some of the differences evolved differences between you know males and females but then also just personal experience like I saw what I was like on testosterone and what I was like on estrogen and um you know even in the same individual there are different behaviors and different thought patterns so uh you know there's there's absolutely um huge differences in how those hormones affect the brain and how like men and women operate and of course there's a lot of overlap and we're more similar than we are different but um, we can't just ignore these differences because <laughs> um, it's just ignoring a huge part of who we are as the human species yeah i mean one of the those differences that's coming up in lots of public public discourse is the the fact that most men are physically stronger than most women and again that's not to talk down to women. I mean, we, we are women. So I'm just, you know, just stating that fact is even met with so much aggression, ironically, and like so much like dominance, um, which, which happens, you know, it's not that it happens between every man and every woman, but um, like in that first example, you were talking about with, with your friend, the trans identified male, um, it, it was very obvious that like in in the presence of someone who's on hormones and who's also they have their personhood tied into this ideology like that there's something about that mix that really produces this like will to dominate and like desire to have you turn down your volume you know like take push down your power so that they can feel powerful and they can feel like their triggers matter more than yours um, and you know, ref reflecting on that experience, I yeah, like I feel like that's also an example of 
how this ideology can negatively impact women's safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of women who, and it does have to do, it, it does have its roots in feminism for sure. Um, I, I think there's a lot of good things that have come from feminism, but um, you know, this idea that, you know, girl power to the point where, you know, we are equal to men in every way, including strength, like that's just not, it's just not accurate. And, um, you know, not to say that women can't be strong and, and women can be strong in many, many ways, you know, not just physical, but I think that there's this appeal to not believe like, I mean, you know, we don't want to believe it's not, it's not an easy pill to swallow that we are vulnerable as women. We are more vulnerable to male attackers as women and sexual violence. And that's just, um, and, you know, when you look at like sexual assault statistics and just, you know, violent crime in general, you know, the majority are committed by men and it does have to do with physiology and, and um, biology and, you know, so things like sports teams and single sex spaces, um, those were things that feminists advocated for um, because, you know, they, they're not to segregate, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, people will compare it to like segregating based on race or something. And, you know, it's not like that at all. It's literally, you know, in order for things to be safe and equal for women, we need to have private spaces, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, there's no reason, there, there's no legitimate reason to have separate bathrooms for black people and white people, like we're all human, but you know, when it comes to men and women, like, yes, there is, um, there is a logical reason for that. And it is women's safety. And, you know, I mean, the bathrooms are one things I, I would say the, the biggest issues when it comes to safety are uh, women's prisons where you know we're now allowing convicted male sex offenders into um, female prisons and also you know any area where women are going to be fully undressed uh, you know like locker rooms things like that um, and you know they'll try to say that it's not happening and that there is no threat to women but then of course all of these stories are popping up and they're just being uh, they're just being silenced like the we spa incident um, was completely misconstrued in the way that uh, leftist media outlets reported it. And it's just really sad because what's happening is, you know, women's safety is being put in jeopardy. The we, the we spot incident was a breaking point for a lot of women, I think. Um, that was actually when I broke, I mean, I, I wasn't completely silent, but I broke some of my silence over the we spot incident. Um, it's actually a little bit difficult for me to talk about, but would you describe like what happened and also what that meant for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so uh, just to backtrack uh, a little bit, just for a second. Um, so for me, like the breaking point was me, me feeling physically unsafe and, you know, feeling unsafe in close proximity to someone who is undergoing transition and, and kind of starting to question like you know this person really isn't acting you know I mean I mean acting like a woman is a a subjective thing but you know the physical intimidation 
and the you know there's there's a particular type of you know testosterone fueled aggression and intimidation that was sort of happening uh and so that was kind of what made me question the whole thing like well you know why are trans women women why are why is anyone who says they're a woman just a woman you know and that was kind of where it started for me so then when i heard about the we spot incidents um I, you know, I wasn't exactly surprised, you know, A, because I think people can be unreliable narrators. Um, and I think, you know, the people that are the most vocal about, I'm not a threat, I'm not a threat, you have to let me into your space, you must let me in, in here, you know, it's like, there's something very dominant about that. It's, it's not asking permission, it's, you know, it's demanding. And, you know, so I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like probably the people who are the least dangerous who are trans identified or, you know, they're not going to be the people who are like demanding access into spaces where women are going to be fully undressed or, you know, uh, female prisons and things like that. But um, so anyway, I watched the video of the woman who was present at the We Spot that day and, um, you know, she was very angry. She was telling the workers at the front desk, the staff at the front desk that, um, you know, there was a man who was fully naked exposing himself in the women's section of the We Spa. And they said something, the staff said something about, well, you know, we can't discriminate based on, or it's the law that we can't, that we have to let them in due to, um, you know, laws about sexual orientation and gender identity. And, um, you know, someone else at the spot started asking the woman if the person was transgender. And she, you know, this woman basically said, I don't believe in transgender. You know, that's a man. He's got, you know, his male genitalia out in front of women and girls. And uh, so anyway, the, the way the media reported it at the time was that, uh, that this woman had basically made it up and there was you know, uh, there was nobody there, there was no man in there. And then um, I think it was a couple months later, um, well, about five people uh, submitted police reports about it. And there was an investigation and it was determined that, you know, there was indeed a man in there. And um, as, as part of his defense, he was claiming a transgender identity. Um, but it turned out this was a registered sex offender. He'd already had previous occurrences of indecent exposure. And um, so he was charged with uh, with the five counts. And I'm not sure if the trial has already gone through or what's going on with that. But um, so, you know, now when you look at this, some of the same media outlets that said it was a hoax are now conceding that, yes, this did actually happen. But um you know, leftist media is suspiciously quiet about, uh, you know, that whole thing. And a lot of them still think it was fake. I recently got into a, de a debate with someone who is basically calling me a liar, as the California senators also did um, when I talked about my detransition. So, you know, and, and I'm someone who has, was traditionally, you know, on the left and my parents, raised me very liberal but um, when you see politicians lie to your face and just you know participate in spreading this false narrative it really makes you lose some of your faith um 
you know, I, I, I don't feel like I have faith in any politicians at all <laughs> at this point. I, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd say I'm like politically homeless due to all of this.